everybody. Welcome to the Taming the Shrew podcast. My name is Josh Borkowski. I'm a paramedic and EMS educator here with the University of Cincinnati's Division of EMS. Joined by a uh, crew of folks here to talk about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We have the Associate Director of the uh, Division of EMS here at UC and uh, attending in the emergency department at both uh, UC Medical Center and Westchester Hospital, Dr. Dustin Calhoun. I have uh, Dr. Mike Bohansky, who is uh, currently one of our EMS fellows and uh, has uh, some expertise in cardiac arrest. He recently uh, came back from the Resuscitation Academy out in Seattle, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his experience there and uh, his thoughts on cardiac arrest. And uh, also Dr. Justin Benoit, who is also one of our EMS fellows this year and has a particular area of interest in uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest research. And also have uh, Keith Widmeyer, who's another one of our uh, paramedics and EMS educators here in the UC Division of EMS. So thanks, everybody, for being with us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. So biggest changes recently in CPR has been this idea of high quality CPR. So I'll just throw it out to anybody in the group that wants to start. I mean, who, you know, what, what do we mean by high quality or high performance CPR? Well, Josh, it's, it's kind of a, I hate to use garbage pail term, but it is a little bit of a garbage pail term that people will use to reference a lot of things. High performance CPR is the concept of trying to maximize the parameters um, within CPR that have been identified to definitely relate to better outcomes. Generally, we're talking about things such as maximizing your compression fraction, um, optimizing your rate, optimizing your depth, optimizing the release off of the chest. The things that we've shown definitely improve out-of-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes. Yeah, you'll see that we'll we'll use this term or you'll hear this term a couple of different ways, high-performance or high-quality CPR, or you'll hear people describe the way that they've achieved this using different um, care models, things like pit crew CPR. But in general, this is a focus on the BLS interventions or the chest compressions and ventilations of CPR rather than what we've commonly uh, focused on in the past, which are the ACLS interventions, the medications and advanced airway stuff. So in general, and you'll see this a lot in the most recent AHA guidelines, is there's a lot of focus on the chest compressions and how well we're doing that. So we're going to talk a lot about that. and We'll get into a little bit of discussion of the more advanced medication sort of stuff. Although intentionally, everybody in their new guidelines has taken away focus um, from the advanced stuff and more on the chest compressions because that's what works. Yeah, and so I guess before we get into you know a lot of these specific details, I think that brings up the larger question of, I know from my personal experience when I was in paramedic school, you know what we focused on in cardiac arrest management is now almost 180 degrees different. I mean, we focus a lot on a lot of those advanced procedures and the airway and the medications, and it was almost like CPR was a secondary type of thing back when I went through it. So how do you change that culture for you know you got a group of people that have been in EMS for 20 plus years? Uh, how do you affect that change and, and get people focused on these these basic things? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the toughest part here is exactly what you mentioned of changing the culture in that people are used to our, our cardiac arrest algorithm changing every couple of years, but changing usually in subtle sort of ways. Um, and what we're talking about now is a pretty dramatic change in focusing primarily on those chest compressions. Uh, the biggest culture change for folks that have been doing this for a while is actually taking a lot of the initial decisions and initial algorithm stuff out of the paramedics and, and putting the onus on the BLS providers or whoever it is that's running the chest compressions on the scene to be the ones running the timing and being the focus of things. 
Um, so we think of this in either fire-based services or, or third uh, service departments, especially with folks who show up that are the, the more senior, the paramedics traditionally coming in and causing more interruptions to do whatever their advanced procedures are, whether it's IVs or airways or drug administrations. And our goal today is to talk about how we really want to put the responsibility back on the BLS providers for running the resuscitation, controlling the rates of the CPR when the pauses are, and uh, utilizing the ALS providers to continue their advanced skills, but to do it outside and, and around the BLS providers so that they're not interrupting that process. Josh, I, I think one thing to interject here, just as sort of a little reassurance and setting the stage for the folks that are listening, is I, I see a lot of frustration with paramedics in the swings that we see and how we do stuff. You know, there are enough paramedics out there that have been around and seen mast pants come in and out of favor sure. several times, right? So they get very frustrated. And what I hope people will recognize is that the change that we're seeing now, the way that we're adapting um, high-performance CPR and the way we do out-of-hospital cardiac arrest resuscitation, is probably less of a swing and more of a focus on actual evidence. So much of what we did in the past and much of the stuff that we're changing now and the paradigms that we're trying to get out of people's heads, like you just mentioned, through education are things that were based mostly on best guesses, on anecdotal evidence, minimal evidence, somewhat less well-evaluated evidence. Whereas now the stuff that we're basing this on are, are there pieces of evidence that are coming from folks that are EMS experts who also focus on research. I mean, these are folks, we have our own. I mean, with us here today, we have Justin Benoit, who spent an entire year of his career doing nothing but learning how to do research well through an additional research fellowship in addition to his EMS fellowship. We have Jason McMullen, who they specialize in this sort of thing. And those are just the folks that we have here that specialize in EMS research. So that's where the, the evidence that we're seeing for this is the same quality of evidence now that has been guiding cardiologists and neurologists and the more in-hospital medical scientists for years. We're now starting to apply that to EMS. So I always put that out there to try and reassure people this isn't just another swing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's sort of an example of the shift in EMS of just in general I said, what I learned, I mean, very little in EMS has traditionally been evidence-based. It's just kind of what we what we think it works. It's reasonable. It seems to work, but we never really knew. And now that we're finding out no works, we're shifting the focus on that. And what we're finding with uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it's a lot of the BLS stuff uh, as we're talking about here. So that's a great point. So, Dr. Ben, well, I guess, you know, being the, uh, the research expert, why don't you uh, dive into the details of high-performance CPR? You know, what are these metrics that we're tracking uh, so when you talk about a, a high-quality chest compression and, and high-performance CPR. Sure, yeah. One of the ones that I think has some of the best evidence behind it nowadays is the compression rate. And so it used to be that we said, you know, go at least 100 compressions per minute. But now we're saying, you know, the new guidelines say go between 100 and 120 compressions per minute. And so that's usually the beat to stay in alive or something like that that people use. And the reason for that change, now having a narrower range and saying the goal is between 100 and 120, comes from research where uh, a group looked at a very large data set of um, patients who all had cardiac arrest. And because of the technology that's in many paddles out there now, we can see exactly what the rate was. And they can look at changes in rate for thousands of different patients. And what they found is that Patients who had a rate that was a little too high, like 130, 140, they didn't do so good. Patients who had a rate a little bit too slow, 90, 80, they didn't do so good. That sweet spot was 100 to 120. So whereas before it was kind of anecdotal evidence, expert opinion, now we have real evidence. And so I think that's one of the uh, probably one of the current guidelines that has the best evidence behind it, compression rate between 100 and 120. 
Awesome. And I, I can, I'll throw out some uh, anecdotal experience to follow up your uh, research-based experience, but we've been doing some work in the uh, simulation lab here and teaching people uh, high-performance CPR and working with different crews. And you can see a difference between when crews start out doing CPR and their rate is really fast because, as you said, we can track all of those metrics in, in the simulation lab, and we can see people doing rates in the 140s, 150s even. And then somebody turns on that cardiac monitor and sets that metronome, uh, at, at a rate of 100 per minute or something on their, their phone or something something in the background that allows that person to keep pace and you can see their rate slow down uh, and how important that is. So I would encourage anybody to, you know, based on that, that experience, at, at least as you're starting out, to use one of those metronomes or something along those lines to keep that rate because, as you said, that rate is really important. And, and all the other metrics that we can track in there, you can see that they're almost rate dependent. When the rate is off, a lot of those other, other metrics suffer as well. The one their rate's in that 100 to 120 sweet spot, they really, uh, all the other metrics kind of fall in line. So, yeah, it's a good jump to probably one of the other metrics. And I'll let the other gentleman talk about some of the other metrics too. But, you know, the what you're talking about is that when that rate is off, some of the other metrics suffer. And the one that we see suffer the most is the release that we want to be releasing 100%. When we come off, we almost want our hands to hover a bit almost barely touching the patient before we do another chest compression right. to allow that heart to fill with blood again. Um, and that's kind of a second of the high-performance CPR guidelines and metrics that we want to meet. But you're absolutely right that when that rate goes up to 130, 140, it's almost natural that the release is less than 100%, and now the patient is getting a double whammy in terms of uh, sure. you know bad CPR. And that, the release thing, really, of the metrics, this is one that as we've started to focus more on the high-performance CPR, has really become much more interesting to me than it ever was when I first started learning um, CPR. I think that it's one that people don't put enough emphasis on because it just seems like, oh, it's necessary. Obviously, you have to release the chest to be able to compress it again, but people don't see what it's doing. And I think that if people really think through what, what's happening during the release, we recognize the importance of it. You know, as we're compressing the chest, yes, you're feeding the brain, and that's absolutely important. You compress the chest, you get blood flow to the brain, that produces your better neurologic outcome. But what we're actually trying to do during CPR is also restart the heart, right? We're trying to get the rhythm back where it should be. And the heart is actually getting its blood flow during that release. And I don't think a lot of people really think that through and realize that you should be spending half of your time during CPR allowing the heart to get its own perfusion. If the heart's not getting that perfusion, you have no chance of getting it to behave and do what you want it to do. Right. One other component to bring up here while we're talking about recoil is depth. And this, too, is one of the other things that suffers with rate when rate gets too fast. In the AHA guidelines and in um, our recent evidence is that we need to be hitting an appropriate depth of two inches and then getting full recoil. So that two inches is going to make sure we're getting the good forward blood flow to the brain, that full recoil that we're allowing that diastolic sort of blood flow into the heart and getting good cardiac perfusion and making sure that we're continuing that over and over again. And as we go too fast, we either suffer on depth because we get tired and aren't, don't get full chest compressions, or we start to lean on the chest and we don't get that full recoil. And then that's where the forward blood flow really, really suffers. Um, so by controlling the rate, making sure you're not going too fast, you can actually spend a little time focusing on depth and recoil of each chest compression because 100 in a minute is not that fast. You can spend some time focusing on that. And then the next piece to this that really we see a lot with uh, with reviewing the data of our, our own local departments is as uh, the paramedic is spending too much time or the, the um, chest compressor is spending too much time doing chest compressions without switching out, we see all three of these metrics fail. 
the rate gets much slower because they get tired, the depth gets to be poor, um, and the recoil becomes to be poor. This is one of those things that EMS providers never want to admit, that they're tired and it's time to change out. You don't really feel tired after two minutes of CPR, but the truth is you are, and it's hard to hit those numbers. So making sure, and we're going to talk a lot about kind of the teamwork aspect of this today, but one of the big things to focus on here is, is getting the chest compressor to switch out on a regular basis so that every chest compression hits the appropriate depth, the appropriate recoil, and we maintain that rate through the whole cardiac arrest. Yeah, and you know, interesting thing about that too is that for the paramedics that are listening and who are running these resuscitations, that's their job too, is to make sure that that compressor is doing a good job. So although we put a lot of emphasis on the BLS guys doing good CPR, I think it's also though the role of the ALS guy or, or gal, you know, to have their hand on the femoral pulse feeling every single chest compression go. And when you see that, that, you know, your person is doing poor CPR, you either need to prompt them to do better or switch them out. That's a way that you can help ensure constant high quality CPR, even though you may not be the one actually doing the compressions. And you can watch that with the entitled CO2. Also, you can, you can clearly see when you're watching people in the sim lab or in a real resuscitation, when, when people start compressing too long, the entitled CO2 starts to leak off go down, and then you switch out to somebody else, and you wind up with an increase from that new compressor. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, Dr. Bohansky mentioned earlier, the ideas of ways of facilitating high-performance CPR, things such as pit crew CPR, which again is a wastebasket term of a lot of different ways of doing things. And by organizing what you're doing um, and incorporating that switch out as part of the things that are happening, you don't have to be cognizant as much of, of how good is the CPR. You're, you're at two minutes. You're done. Your next person is up there. Um, you're not waiting until it gets poor, and then you have that 10 or 15 or 30 seconds of poor CPR um, before you switch. One of the other uh, big metrics, and that's all great stuff on the, the quality of chest compressions themselves. So one of the other big metrics that we, uh, that we follow and heard a lot about is this idea of the term compression fraction. So somebody define for me what exactly is compression fraction? Why is that so important to uh, high-performance CPR? Yeah, so that's a great question. This honestly has been the, the one that has changed the most for me about the way I review these cardiac arrests. Um, so chest compression fraction in general is how much time during the cardiac arrest are we actually performing chest compressions? The idea being that there's inevitably some time where we're not performing chest compressions, where we're doing a rhythm check, where we're defibrillating, where we're giving a breath. There's pauses that are built into our cardiac arrest resuscitation, but minimizing those pauses, making sure there's no unnecessary pauses, helps us to increase the amount of time during the cardiac arrest that we're doing chest compressions, which is how we're getting the blood flow, how we're circulating the drugs that we're administering, how we're circulating the oxygen that we're ventilating with. Um, So getting the forward blood flow is the most important part. So making sure that we're maximizing that, that chest compression fraction is key. Now, the American Heart Association set some relatively low goals in their, their most recent update, um, which was at least 60 or 70% chest compression fractions. High performing groups out there um, are hitting goals of greater than 90%. Um, our goals here leak uh, locally are between 80 and 90%, trying to make sure that the majority of that cardiac arrest is spent performing chest compressions and not sitting in, and inter- doing other interventions that are um, interfering with the chest compressions themselves because those are so key to the resuscitation. Yeah, I know. And that, that for me, I think is one of the biggest values in all this feedback that we get on uh, cardiac arrest nowadays is that idea of compression fraction because it's, it's so easy you know, when you look at human factors and, and 
you know, people get lost in the moment, you get task oriented, and, and all of a sudden there's a 30 second pause in compressions, and nobody really realizes it. I mean, you know, even if you interview people afterwards, nobody even realized it was there. They would tell you, yeah, we did great CPR the whole time, we didn't have any pauses. And then you look at the metrics, and there's a 30 second pause for, you know, they're looking for an airway or even looking for a pulse or something simple like that. So it's so easy to get lost in the moment, you don't have that feedback uh, coming back to you. So I think that's a huge area to improve. Just a really quick question. Where do we draw the line between compression fraction and quality of compressions? For example, that patient who goes down in a cardiac arrest in between the toilet and the, ba- and the wall in a bathroom, should we be doing compressions that might not be the best because we need to get that good, com- that good compression fraction, or should we be moving them out to a location where we could be doing better quality compression? That's, that's a great question, and that's actually something whenever I talk, about, talk to groups about this kind of thing that I, that I go into because you need both. Um, and I kind of look at it as any other investment. Uh, the, as you're approaching a cardiac arrest patient, when I do, I'm looking around and looking at where am I going to perform this resuscitation. And I tell people that, you know, where's the best place to do a cardiac arrest resuscitation? Well, as close to where that person is found as you can, do good CPR, good pit crew CPR, good uh, resuscitation processes. So as you're approaching, look for that spot. If they went down in the one-foot space between the toilet and the bathtub, well, no, I, I can't do good. You know, I might be able to do good CPR for a couple of seconds there, but I can't orchestrate a good resuscitation there. How long is it going to take me to move your average person from that place, maybe out into the hallway or into the bedroom or something like that? It, you know, it's not negligible by any means. You know, it could be 10, 20, 30 seconds. But that 10, 20, 30 seconds of lost um, compression fraction, lost time on the chest is going to have such a massive improvement in your quality of release, quality of compression, quality of rate, quality of organization of that resuscitation process that it's a wise investment up front. Um, So that's sort of the way I reconcile those two things when I talk to groups. Yeah, I think that's a great point because we've talked about it. I know we've seen this in the sim lab and, and touched on this. And we've known for a long time now, or at least a relatively long time, that you know, working the cardiac arrest in the field and, you know, it's no longer a scoop and run or load and go type of situation. Uh, that, you know, working the patient in the field is, is gives that patient the best chance of survival and getting ROSC back in the field. And to do that, if you're going to be on the scene for 20 minutes or, or more working a cardiac arrest, you really need to own your space, in my opinion. And like I said, there, there are some things that you can't control. I mean, you're not going to move huge items out of the way or anything like that. But if you can you know, move a couch, uh, slide it a little bit or move an end table or move the patient into a, to a bigger room or something like that. And, you know, and then of course, uh, you know, if you lose 10 or 15 seconds, like I said, that's not great, but it's your, what, what you gain long-term and being able to coordinate movements better and coordinate the entire arrest better, uh, I think is, is a huge benefit. Well, yeah. we've all seen that though, haven't we, Jeff? We've all seen in the sim lab here where you put a desk chair in the way intentionally Absolutely. And then you have very, very high-functioning paramedics and, and EMT basics who are running this code that are so focused on running that code that they don't even think about that minor adjustment to their environment, and they will work around that chair for 10, 15 minutes before thinking about just sliding it out of the way. Absolutely, or you know, mannequin against the wall and trying to manage an airway from an awkward angle. If you were, if you just slide them five feet out, uh, you could manage it a lot, a lot easier. So yeah, and I think that's again part of our culture is we're so used to just working people where we find them and working in all these crazy environments uh, that we need to think about optimizing our space to really optimize how we run these arrests. But then don't take it the other extreme though, because sure. that's the other extreme that I see is well, I'm most comfortable and I have my best lighting and my best situation in the back of the ambulance, so we should take them down three floors and out to the ambulance. And that's definitely not the best thing for the patient. No, I think there's an in-between in there. And we certainly know, like I said, 
working in the ambulance or in transport is not the uh, best environment for a cardiac arrest patient. So let's come back to that chest compression fraction or ratio here again for a couple of minutes. And I'll throw this out to the group of when you guys are teaching high performance or high quality CPR, how are you getting folks to maximize this fraction? What are the tips and tricks that you're giving to help folks hit the highest numbers or high, highest percentage of time performing chest compressions? I think the, uh, the, Biggest yield is uh, what's often referred to as the peri shock pause. And so, again, as we talked about, there's built in pauses to CPR in the resuscitation. We got to check for a pulse, we got to defibrillate sometimes. And so, there's naturally going to be pauses. Um, whenever we're checking a pulse, shocking, et cetera. So that, those pauses are called a peri-shock pause. And those pauses are the biggest ones we want to minimize. We want those as short as possible. And so there's a couple of ways to do this, but probably two of the biggest things I teach are if you're going to stop and check a pulse and you think the person needs to be shocked, make sure someone is doing chest compressions while the defibrillator is charging. You know, we've taught for so many years, oh, everybody clear, I'm clear, you're clear, my grandma's clear, this person's clear. You know, 20 seconds have gone by before we're all clear. And it's really not that big of a deal. Um, Somebody should be doing CPR during the charge and then get off the chest. Um, There's the shock. And then that's kind of number one. And number two is after that shock is delivered, There is nothing to do but get back on that chest and start doing CPR again. So your post-shock pause should never be more than a second because there's nothing more to do after that shock but get back on the chest. So if you shorten those peri-shock pauses, I think you'll achieve a much better compression fraction. The other thing that I look at is, and I actually in one slide set that I use, I have a slide that I put up there and I, I always do a little brainstorming session with the group of what are the things that you pause for? What are those things? An IV, uh, an airway, uh, moving the patient, um, shocking the patient, charging the monitor. What are those things? We go through all of those, and then we work through sort of a way of eliminating every one of them. And the biggest thing that I try and focus people on is that you should have, with with rare exception, strange things are going to happen. You're going to have to do unusual stuff occasionally. But with rare exception, you should have one pause every two minutes. And during that one pause, you should do everything that needs to be done that requires a pause. Because there are things that require a pause, right? you got to check a pulse periodically. Um, I don't know anybody who's comfortable running a resuscitation for 30 minutes without ever checking a pulse, assuming that they're going to be able to pick up that skyrocket rise on an entitled CO2, particularly now with great entitled, right? Everybody in the room is shaking their head saying, yes, they've seen this. You know, I got an entitled of 40 during my entire code because we're doing great CPR on an early arrest patient. So we can't look for that. You've got to stop and check a pulse. Um, you've got to shock the patient, or you got to at least look for a rhythm that's shockable periodically. Um, I'm, I'm not comfortable enough with the sort of the see-through CPR monitors where, where you can look at that rhythm and know what it is. I want to stop the CPR periodically. But we're going to do that all at the same time. When I run a code, you know, I've got somebody's finger on the pulse. Now, you know, I, yes, I don't want to get letters from everybody out there who recognizes that it's a venous pulse and not an arterial pulse while you're doing compressions. But, you know, the vein is right next to the artery. So if you found the, the venous pulse during the compressions, then you'll have your finger in the right place for that arterial pulse. So we know we're in the right place for the pulse check. We've got the monitor pre-charged, so this, there isn't this weird stutter step of, um, okay, stop. Oh, yep, okay, we, we, have, we need to shock. Okay, start again. Okay, charge. Okay, now stop again. It's, I've, got it, I've got it pre-charged. I'm going to assume that I may need to shock, so I get it pre-charged. And then we're all ready. We're also going to change compressors during that time. And all of that stuff is on a two-minute basis. So you have this couple of seconds, and I've seen crews that can get it down to three or four seconds to do all of that stuff. You know, they change compressors, they check a pulse, they check a rhythm, they deliver a shock, and then they're good to go again at another you know, brand-new 100% fresh compressor. 
um, so that they have this three seconds every couple of minutes. And, and that's, that's the way I found to do it is to really compress everything into that one pause. Yeah, that's all great stuff. Yeah, Keith. So I know that some places have taught that it's a good idea to use AED mode in, uh, on their monitors to keep timing. How does that affect your uh, pauses? It's a great question, and unfortunately, I think this is one of the areas that we have failed a little bit in the devices that are out there, and, and I've seen some departments that have done workarounds with their own external little timers or metronomes or things like that. Um, and a number of the monitors have this AED mode built into them where it counts down and tells you when it's time to check a pulse and all that stuff, and that is great as far as their timing. The downside to AED mode in any one of the monitors that are out there these days is they will not analyze while you're currently undergoing chest compressions, which means that you are pausing during the analyzation period. You're probably pausing or only getting a couple chest compressions in while it's then charging, and so you end up with big, big, long pauses. AED mode or AEDs in general are fantastic devices if the only folks you have on scene are BLS providers or an AED. If you have a paramedic on scene or somebody who is skilled in the interpretation of a rhythm, they can do a much faster job of interpreting a rhythm and delivering a shock than an AED is capable of doing. And remember, there are only two decisions here. It's shock or no shock. You see something that looks like V-fib or V-tac and you're shocking or you see something that does not look like that and you're not shocking. Those are the two decisions, or the one decision, two possibilities you're going to make and then continue on with uh, the next part of your resuscitation. So don't sit around or ask three opinions on what that rhythm looks like. Don't take a look at it for 35 seconds trying to figure out what it is. Make that decision very quickly and then um, move on to either the shock or back to chest compressions appropriately. And to talk about the evidence just briefly about that, one of the things I like about cardiac arrest research is that seconds matter. I mean, it's amazing. And so some of the research around these peri-shock pauses are fascinating. A lot of this research is from pig studies. So they literally take uh, poor pigs and put them into cardiac arrest. It's not perfect data. It's not as good as if we were studying in humans. But still, we can get an idea of what the right thing is to do from these kind of scientific studies. And what they've shown is that the difference between a three-second peri-shock pause, total pause of three seconds, like what Dr. Calhoun is talking about, about maximizing everything, having everything ready, boom, three seconds, you've shocked your back on the chest, versus a 10-second pause. So we're only talking about a seven-second difference. But even that difference of a three-second pause versus a 10-second pause actually affects the quality of CPR and the likelihood of actually being able to restart that pig's heart. And again, we're talking about pigs. It's not perfect evidence, but that to me is fascinating. That seven seconds difference does make a difference. And so that's why we want these as short as possible. Well, Dr. Benoit, I think I'm thinking of the same studies you're talking about. An interesting emphasis on those is those are healthy pig hearts, right? So that was a perfectly healthy pig wandering around before they intentionally put it into VTAC VFib. This wasn't the 70 or 80-year-old with a bunch of plaque in their heart whose heart doesn't really have a lot of interest in restarting it and went into a rest on its own. So I think if you take that pause out even further, I think the data you're looking at, if you go out to 20 seconds, there's almost zero chance of with a 20-second pause of getting very, very few of those actually go back to rhythm with the shock. So that was a perfectly healthy thing with perfectly healthy pig heart, 20-second pause. It was perfectly healthy before, and now it won't restart. If you look at a lot of your AED monitors, to get back to Keith's original question, a lot of them, they force you into a 20-second pause before they'll shock. And if you take a perfectly healthy pig heart and can't restart it after 20 seconds, the 70 or 80-year-old full of atherosclerotic plaque heart probably isn't going to do any better. Now, if all you have, if you are the EMT basic on a unit that that's your only option, well, absolutely. I'm not saying don't use the AED, 
but to see a paramedic take all of their training and all of their advanced skill and knowledge and just hand it over to a machine is just terribly disheartening to me when I see that. Yeah, it's all great stuff. And I, I think, you know, we've had great discussion points here and we, we can see here we, we've got a lot of great information about the chest compression and defibrillation uh, portion of CPR and how to really maximize or, or optimize that portion of the arrest and give our patients the best chance of survival. So the other part of CPR, obviously, is the, the airway and ventilation. So Dr. Benoit, you recently authored a, uh, a paper that uh, got a lot of attention on airway management and cardiac arrest. So I know you now, you want to break the news to the world here. Tell us what what is the definitive airway to use in cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Which one should we use? Come on, quit holding the secret in and tell us what to use in cardiac arrest. Yeah, the answer to that question is... I have no idea. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, for as much as we've been able to define what we should do for CPR, I think, you know, how we breathe for the patient is still a bit of a black box. So, you know, when somebody goes into cardiac arrest, we're trying to do kind of, I don't know, I think of it as three things. We're trying to beat the heart for it. We're trying to restart the heart somehow, and we're also trying to breathe for the patient. And so there's been a lot of studies that have been out there that have looked at the issue of which device should we use to breathe for the patient. And a lot of times it gets lumped into, should we use a bag valve mask, or should we use a supraglottic airway, or should we do an endotracheal tube? And you've probably seen a chatter about this, um, where there's been some studies that have shown that bag valve mask ventilation is better than doing an advanced airway. The problem with all of those studies is that they're all observational, which means that we just sort of, you know, a bunch of cardiac arrests happen, and then we looked after the fact to see who did well and who didn't. Well, we all know that, you know, if I roll up on scene and I get there and, you know, I'm bagging the person and boom, I shock them and, oh, they get a pulse back right away, the chances are that patient's going to do really well. So all they ever got was a bag valve mask. So now it looks like, oh, they did great because all they got was a bag valve mask. Bag valve mask is the way to go. But really, the sicker patients are the ones that tend to be in cardiac arrest longer, and so they're more likely to get supraglottic airways or endotracheal tubes. So because of this, there's still a bit of debate. Nobody really knows. Um, The study that you're referencing that I did actually just looked at endotracheal intubation versus supraglottic airways, trying to answer that question. And when you just look look at supraglottic airways and endotracheal intubation, the study I did showed that endotracheal tubes do a little bit better than supraglottics. But again, it still suffers from that exact, well, not the exact same problem, but there may be some bias there. All those patients needed an advanced airway. So we sort of took out the patients who got the one shock wonder where we just shock and they came back right away. But still, there might be some bias there. There might be that Maybe, you know, one person does great CPR and runs a great resuscitation and they're old school and they intubate. And so, you know, whereas maybe the younger guy who doesn't run a great code, you know, he uses superglottic. And so it's hard to know for sure. Because of that, there are actually two randomized control trials that are starting right now, one in the United States and one in uh, Europe that are randomizing people to endotracheal intubation versus supraglottic airway. So I think that answer, we will probably have a definitive answer to your question in a couple of years, but the issue of the advanced airway versus the bag valve mask, hard to say. Do you think, just this is almost for personal curiosity as well, because I haven't been able to come up with my own answer, do you think there's a difference between the supraglottic airways? Because I, I know, particularly in this area, we're seeing a big surge in people getting interested in the IGEL, whereas, you know, if you'd asked three years ago, pretty much everybody that was carrying one was probably carrying a king, or at least 90% of people were. What are your thoughts on, on that? 
It's a great question. And again, unfortunately, I have to say we have no idea. There was, again, you'll probably have heard chatter about, oh, you know, do King Airways, does that balloon inflate in the pharynx and then cut off blood circulation to the neck? And so then you're not perfusing the brain or something like that. That came out of a little bit of pig data and a little bit of sort of, oh, we did a CT scan, you know, on a few patients, you know, who had a superglottic in the way. It's, it's interesting stuff. It's provocative, but it's by no means definitive. Because of that, some people have said, well, maybe the eye gel that you don't really inflate is better. But the bottom line is there's just not enough data to analyze one superglottic versus the other. So we don't know. One last quick question for me is there's a lot of stuff you can't say what is the right thing to do. Are there a couple of points that you could make that are what's the wrong thing to do with airway? I think probably the biggest wrong thing to do would be to spend too much time getting the airway. We talked already about the importance of continuous CPR and uh, continuous chest compressions. And I think the old school way of thinking about cardiac resuscitation was, I got to get this tube, I got to get this tube, I got to get this tube. And so, all right, everybody stand aside and let me get this tube. I think we can definitively say that's no good. So whatever we do with the airway, we want it to not impede CPR. That I think we can say definitively. But the question of, is is that airway, you know, device being a bag or a superglottic, hard to say. So I wanted to ask a question. I know in the recent uh, AHA guidelines, they talked about passive oxygenation in the first few minutes of cardiac arrest. Can you guys uh, describe that a little bit more? That's a great question. There's so much debate when it comes to airway. So a lot of that um, research comes out of uh, Arizona. Uh, The uh, group there in Arizona does awesome uh, resuscitation research. And so they have this whole protocol they do uh, called minimally interrupted CPR, where they sort of roll up on scene and all they do is passively uh, get oxygen into them, uh, like you said, like with a nasal cannula or something like that, just blowing oxygen into the nose or into the mouth. Uh, I'd have to look at their exact protocol. And then they just bang out CPR. And they're just like CPR nonstop. They don't interrupt it. And then I think they even like shock, just like everybody gets shocked and they're not even wasting time checking for rhythms and stuff like that. Again, I might be quoting it a little bit wrong. I I don't want to misrepresent. But um, the point is um, that they just have this whole set you know, thing that they're doing. So what the AHA actually says on the issue of only doing passive oxygenation is it says, if you're doing that in association with a bundle of care, like I'm describing, which is what this Arizona group does, it may be reasonable. And they're saying that because the Arizona groups are getting good outcomes with that. But I think it's important to recognize that what they're doing is a whole bundle of things. So unless your EMS agency is doing that bundle you know, don't just be doing a nasal cannula and that it, there's no evidence for a nasal cannula alone unless it's with this bundle of care, this sort of Arizona way of running your resuscitation. Great stuff. And, and I think for me, the overriding thing, and, and even going back to the chest compression, defibrillation stuff, you know, this all takes practice. This all takes training and coordination. You can't just roll up on the scene of a cardiac arrest and, and expect to do this your first time out. Uh, you need to talk about it as a crew and, and, and practice it in, in some sort of simulation, whether it be in high fidelity or even, you know, just a, a simple mannequin. Uh, you need to practice this. And the same thing with airway management. You know, if you roll up to the scene, get out your bag valve mask, and it's the first time in the last three or four months that you've had a BVM in your hands, you're probably not going to be very effective. Uh, and that's the same thing with innovation or even a, a superglottic airway or, or, or anything. So, you know, focusing on airway management and then kind of whatever it is that you do, if your department 
uh, or your medical director decides we're going to innovate our cardiac arrest or we're just strictly going to do BVM ventilation, whatever it is, like whatever it is you do, be as good at it as you can be, practice it as much as you can be, and then that's going to be, uh, that's going to be effective. This concludes the first part of our two-part out-of-hospital cardiac arrest series. We recorded all of it in one sitting, but we wanted to divide it up so that we can have a reasonable podcast length because there's so much information to go over. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you all very much.